reminder of the Lord, um, the Lord bringing a, a fresh vitality in praise and worship. So um, that's one aspect of our overall goal here this summer. Psalm 28.7, again, we, I shared it briefly as, uh, before Justin started. I'd like just to have this keynote in our hearts. It's just such a wonderful composite verse for the dynamics of being a praiser. Psalm 28.7, actually I'm going to begin at the sixth verse, read the two verses together, because again the sixth one also accents that hear the voice of my supplication. So 6 and 7 of Psalm 28 on page 634, read aloud with me if you would. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. There are many, many ways to, to really draw from this verse a reminder of, of this vitality, but I, the, the, the one that I love the best is, let's accent personal pronouns for a moment. Could you do that with me? Let's accent the my and the I in this, and just put some punch in that, because it reminds us of something that we see why in the New Testament in a few minutes is such a vital truth for us today. So let's accent those personal pronouns together. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices and with my song, I will praise him. Isn't that good? Isn't that great? Let's give thanks to God for that. Give him praise. Live in it this week. Walk in it this week. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, a couple of uh, really quick important announcements today. One is that um, this coming Friday night is an opportunity we just love to share. It's Friday night on the church grounds here on the back lawn. Many of you would remember uh, two years ago when we uh, started back into outdoor services. How, what, a, what a joy that was. It was a lot of work for the team and a lot of these guys that are going to be setting up uh, for Friday, they had to do it every week for several weeks back in 2020, but on Sunday mornings and then take it down. But uh, Friday evening, the praise concert with Josiah Nussbaum's release of his new digital um, album, that's, that's an exciting development in itself, and then the team that he's put together. Um, uh, I don't know the logistics, so some of you guys, if you want to offer some help on some of their setup and takedown, I'm sure they could probably use some, some hands-on help. But we're going to have the concert, the praise and worship on the lawn at 7 p.m. on Friday night, and an ice cream social after, and it's just a great time to invite somebody uh, to share in, uh, in a way to launch your summer uh, with the high praises of God. Then on the last Sunday of June, it's a week after Father's Day, we'll have our water baptism, and I'm so looking forward to this time to take, uh, at this point, two adults and one child. Of course, you have the opportunity still if you if a parent uh, wasn't sure, maybe there's some questions for a young person where they are, if they receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior, or need counsel in, in terms of how to see and understand that, um, we love to do this. It's just a joy. So the conclusion of our service on uh, June the 26th will be our water baptism time. And then I want to jump way to the end of the summer because I know how busy every, everybody gets. And would you put on your calendar for that last Sunday of August? the 28th of August, that we'll have uh, our annual church picnic uh, cookout out on the grounds um, with uh, some really fun 
stuff for kids to get soaking wet. And of course, I always get soaking wet with all the kids, so I love that too. So plan to be with us for that Sunday morning. It's the regular Sunday morning time. Not We won't have Cafe Liberty on August 28th. Uh, we'll have normal service time, some praise and worship, uh, a brief message. Uh, that's please, please pray that that happens, you know, that it's brief. Okay, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll break and we'll get out and we'll have some great fellowship and food on the 28th of August. Well, today I want to invite you uh, to turn in your Bible to the first chapter of the book of Colossians, in turning to Colossians chapter 1, looking at verse 4 through 11, and verse 23 through 29, I want to invite you to think about the understanding of how we come to freedom in our walk with Christ, maybe in a new frame. And the frame that I'm thinking about is the the uh, the understanding which is at the heart of the the more um, the more doctrinal section of Col- Colossians about uh, the centrality of Christ as our Lord and Savior as sovereign ruler of the universe. There is a truth in in the epistle to the Colossians which is very distinctive because of the particular kind of error that the Apostle Paul was addressing. There's a truth regarding the cosmic impact of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is distinctive to the epistle to the Colossians. And uh, that part uh, we will look at later. But I want to look in that first chapter at the application to our lives of ownership. What does it mean to be under the lordship of Jesus? Freedom, vitality, life in Christ, the very best, the very best of what our hearts instinctively desire out of life comes from knowing to whom we belong. And we'll begin, uh, if we think about it in light of your own experience um, uh, of, of coming to know Christ as your Savior, we know that um, all of us encounter this truth of lordship it, at one point or another in a different way. For many of us, myself included, I can honestly say that when I first came to Christ and received him as my Lord and Savior, looking back, tracking back, I had fun sharing with our baptism class a little bit of my story in that regard, and back when I was 10 years old, I'll never forget it. I know exactly where I was. I remember it vividly. I remember, I remember how the light of the gospel struck my heart as a kid in a class of an 82-year-old Sunday school teacher, white-haired lady, who faithfully, week after week after week, presented the clear gospel of the Lord Jesus. Whatever her lesson was, whatever her her theme was, she always wrapped it up with a clear presentation of how a child could receive Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. And the the Sunday that it gelled in my heart, I knew I needed to do that. (coughs) I spoke to that Sunday school teacher. She prayed the prayer with me. I received water baptism in that particular, the church culture I grew up in. It was a sprinkling. And um, But I remember still that it was so vivid to me, I knew I'd given my heart to Jesus. There was no question in my mind about it. I went through a stormy time in my middle school years for a variety of reasons, very long story. But when I was 15, so I was five years after I was born again, is when I came to the first realization that I had never really cert- for certain in my heart understood what it meant to say Jesus is Lord of my life. I didn't understand that distinction. And uh, 
the Holy Spirit used a number of different things to bring that to clarity for me, uh, with the, the, the power and purpose of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit and all that that means. And, and when that happened, uh, there was a significant shift. And over the years, I began to realize that a helpful way to think of that would be ownership. In a sense, it is recognizing that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has, through death, burial, and resurrection, and through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, through the mighty power of the redeeming blood of Christ, God gives each of us the opportunity to experience in our very being the knowledge that we individually belong to him. And to belong to him, and to know you have that belonging. And we pray in a congregational expression like Liberty Church that it could be expressed also in the sense of belonging that we want to give one to another. That's an expression of that grace. But it all comes from that assurance in my heart, Lord, through Christ and through Christ alone, through no merit of mine, but through the redemptive conquest of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I belong to you. In 1996, there was an auction highly publicized of all of the estate um, possessions of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And the auction estimators, the appraisers, expected to get about a total of roughly $5 million out of the entire auction. But their expectations were way too low for the take on that event. The first night's take for the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis auction was $4.5 million. One of the items that was auctioned that night was an old threadbare footstool from the Kennedys. It went for $33,350. There was a silver tape measure that sold for $48,875, a tape measure that Jackie First Lady Jackie had used. And the, the highest priced item, for some reason as a kid, this, it flashed back to me, my grandfather, when I, when I saw this. The highest priced item was something President Kennedy had used in the Oval Office. It was a walnut tobacco humidor, and it brought $574,500. The kind of thing I remembered my own grandfather used to use as a spittoon in Texas. $574,000. So you have to ask the question, what, what, what got these prices so escalated? Well, clearly, we know the answer. The value was in who these items belonged to. So in your life and in mine, we can never fully appraise. We never fully appraise the value of an individual soul. When we think, for example, as when we think about the fight in our time today for preserving and protecting and cherishing the life of every single little unborn baby in the womb and guarding the sanctity of life, one of the reasons we do is because of the infinite value that God Almighty, the Creator, places on every single unborn baby. Every single one 
from the moment of conception is an infinitely valuable little tiny human being whose lives, the value of whose lives should be celebrated and cherished and defended. Now extend and apply that to our individual walk with God as a child of God. There's an intrinsic, eternal, infinite value of the creator on every unborn baby and every child at every stage of development because these little ones are made in the image of God. But there's also, in Colossians here, we see a a focus on the infinite value of the individual, not only because of creation, but because of redemption. You see, Colossians gives us insight into the vitality of a growing faith in Christ through showing us that the Lord who is the Redeemer is also our owner and our sovereign King. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 4, if you look at it in your Bible, you see that um, the scripture talks about the growth, the love that grows in the hearts of the children of God. It is absolutely crucial to understand that we can never love as we ought to love apart from the love that has no limits because it is connected to the eternal conquest of our king. And so in Colossians 1.4, the apostle Paul writes, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, that agape love he mentions is anchored in what unfolds in this first chapter about the cosmic conquest and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 5 that the love that you can experience, a love that can become more vital, more enriching, more real and, and personal in your life because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. A notable factor, uh, or notable facet of the epistle to the Colossians is that the virtues that bring vitality in the Christian life are anchored and connected to an eternal dimension, and that eternal dimension is because of the cosmic conquest of Christ. So there's a way in which this particular epistle hits a distinctive theme and we'll see later why the particular error that Paul is addressing is, is, uh, takes a little time to explain. But the focus is on the supremacy of Jesus, the preeminence of Christ. Take a moment and just uh, run your finger down in that first chapter down to verse 15 through 18. And notice that he grounds and anchors these statements about the vitality of coming under his lordship, his ownership, He grounds them in the first principles of creation and redemption. In verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's it's an illustration of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that it was God's plan to birth creation through their eternal design for love. And verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is the cosmic Christ. This is the 
ruler. This is the owner of all creation. Now, again, when you look at it this way, you, you see some very interesting applications that come very early in the text. And I want to go back to that, of course, and ask you to look with me at, um, at verse 9 of Colossians 1, where Paul, again, comes back to this expression, this, um, this understanding of how he prays for the believers in this region of Colossae, about 90 miles west of Ephesus. And he's writing from his position of being under house arrest in Rome, so he's in a sort of a modified imprisonment in Rome in that last chapter of the book of Acts. And he's conveying to a congregation, congregations plural in that region, who had never met him, that there is a love, there is an all prevailing love that that affects you and elevates your ability to love because of the one to whom you belong. It really raises the potential for healthy relationships and vitality in our spiritual growth when we realize that it isn't just the fact of Christ dying for my sins that gives me the assurance of heaven, that's wonderful and priceless. It's also the fact that Christ dying for my sins and being raised from the dead gives me a capacity to love, gives me a capacity to serve, gives me a capacity to go beyond my human resources in a way that is absolutely dazzling to the imagination to realize the vast scope of that. And when we get a glimpse of this, we begin to understand, again, the necessity and the the fervency of Paul's prayer in verse 9, where he says, So from the day we heard this, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, look at Colossians 1.9 in your own Bible, if you will. He says, In my prayer I keep asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, these three verses between 9 and 11 of Colossians 1 are another great power-packed model prayer that any of us could take and should take uh, to our quiet time with God for the simple reason that I could pick quickly seven names out of this congregation today, and every single name I might mention, they need everything in this prayer, including this guy. And the fact is, when you think about it that way, you realize these are not just kind of pretty, flowery, poetic words. Paul, in the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is aiming at us understanding there are some vast riches. There's an inestimable value yet to be discovered because of the one to whom we belong. The little tape measure that belonged to a first lady and sell for $38,000, God's infinite love, God's infinite grace in Christ raises the value, not only of every individual, but friends, I want to apply it as well very quickly to this church because One of the things I love to share wherever I go 
and interact with other people in smaller congregations is this is an era in which we need to cherish and love and guard and value the infinite worth of every congregation that is anchored in Christ Jesus and is seeking to be an expression of his love through their community. It is infinitely valued, valuable. It's far more valuable than is often understood. And the reason I think we need it is because in our lives today, we just spent uh, three weeks looking at, uh, um, at prevailing over a per- in perilous times from, uh, from, from the scripture and then looking last week at where do the weary go to worship in the aftermath of that horrific tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. My mind and heart was smashed with grief over that, that uh, senseless tragedy and along with many other tragedies that we all hear about every week. And I, I, I rem- was reminded in that wonderful passage of Isaiah 40 that God had specifically planned to send an eternal comfort through the gospel that would come in the ruling one. We saw that last week in Isaiah 40, verse uh, 11 and 12, where it says, he will rule as a shepherd. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, is Paul really praying that our eyes might be opened so we could get a fresh perspective on two things that are like recurring themes of an orchestra that, that continued to reverberate through this brief epistle. Staying free in Christ and growing well. Staying free and growing well. So as we think about um, his prayer, we see in verse 11 that there is a source from which that this, uh, this vitality can come. It says in verse 11 of Colossians 1, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So in the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is this reality that there is a powerful source of love that enables us to go beyond what our normal and natural proclivities are, that we can move beyond the barriers of the limits of our love. And the prayer in verse 11 is that we can see and experience the power of it. So I want to ask you to link together this verse, the fifth verse and the 11th verse in this sense. If you could read aloud from the screen here that these... The source of this vitality is a faith and a love that is anchored in what Christ has done for us. Would you read just that yellow part aloud with me? The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Now, it's very interesting to think about this. In verse 9 through 11, he's praying that these things, that our eyes would be open to these things that we'd understand the power of it, that we would tap into the power of it. And yet back in verse 5, he says, you've already heard this gospel. Now, what I love about that is what kind of like what my childhood experience that I told you about mirrors in a very small way, and that is that all of us, all of us, no matter how long we've walked with Christ in a faith relationship, all of us 
have the seed of the gospel in us, and that seed has the potency of life in dimensions we have not yet fully grasped or understood. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't keep praying. I pray that your eyes would be open. I pray that you might perceive this more and more. So in other words, what, what we can get in a kind of a the panorama of Paul's prayer in verse 4 and 5 and then the further accent on his prayer in verse 9 through 11 is that bearing fruit, or I, might, I like to think of it as in this sense that bearing fruit is the uh, visual illustration of real vitality in the Christian life. Now, of course, we know that's true from uh, the use that Jesus used of the same analogy in John chapter 15. When Jesus talked about uh, the vital union, the vitality of a living relationship with him, he compares it to the kind of vines that are growing right around the corner from us here on, on Old Westminster Road, this beautiful vineyard where the, where the grapes, the luscious grapes, produce the potential for wonderful fruit and, 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 and delicious product because, because of the life that's in the vine. I heard a guy say many years ago, humorously, I never forgot, you never see somebody walk up to the side of a, of a vineyard or a, a vine stock and put their ear to it and hear the grapes going, mm, mm, mm. they're not trying to grow. They're experiencing the vitality of life. Now, Jesus was talking about that in John 15, and he said, I'm the true vine, and my father is the cultivator, and you are the branches. And in that simple and poignant illustration, Jesus gives us a timeless way to see what Paul talks about in Colossians 1, 6, and 7 when he speaks of this bearing fruit. And in verse 10, and the, the bearing fruit in our lives for the glory of God. That fruitfulness is further specified in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 when Paul gives nine classic examples, certainly not an exhaustive list, but the nine, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. These, these are qualities that are examples of the vitality of staying free in Christ. Now, we can see later in the Colossians situation, part of his goal was to keep them free from, from an oppressive legalism and a false asceticism. But it could be many things in our lives. Staying free from something that would steal your momentum, that would hold you back, that would keep you from having that yearning every morning to pray in some manner like Paul Lord, open my eyes again today to the, to the fullness of your power. Help me perceive your power in a new way. I wonder if this coming week, if every one of us would just pray a prayer like that in our own words, uh, that, that, that it would be a wonderful adventure to share for these next seven days. And that would be a simple prayer in some way in your own words. Lord, show me more of your power in my life. It's, it's a... It's an open door like Paul's. Show me how to understand your power, the, the mighty power, because our eyes are often, we're not, we're not picking up on, on it in our lives many times. So the bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God is, is, the, is, the, is one of the rich benefits of saying, 
I'm under his ownership. I'm, I'm under new ownership. I've been redeemed from the ownership, the dominion of Satan, described as the realm of darkness, but also the self-centered grip that I have upon my soul. Certainly there's a dimension in Scripture that re- references Satan's part of that. We know uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 refers to Satan as the god of this world, god with a small g. That is, Satan is referred to there as the, as, as the, uh, the intruder, the usurper god, the, the, the one seeking an advantage. Ephesians 4.27, Paul continues to remind the child of God, don't give any place to the devil. Be alert to the devices of Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, right after telling us to cast all of our cares upon the Lord, Peter immediately says, now be alert, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. So that satanic dimension of the picture of what could hinder is very real. But it's not the only part that can hinder. It is also connected to the self-will and the selfishness of the soul by which a person can become a prisoner of their own yearnings for control of themselves or others. So there is a, there's, and there's of course a nexus between those. It's really striking when you think about this. Sometimes people get all hung up over, well, what's the devil and what's my flesh? What's the devil and what's my flesh? One of the simple ways to think about it is, it's one of those things in Scripture that's intentionally left ambiguous so that you won't think you've got it all figured out. And one way we know this is in Galatians chapter 5, just before that fruit of the Spirit section, the Apostle Paul gives a list of what's called the works of the flesh. And in that works of the flesh list in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he lists a whole range of very obviously immoral and ungodly things. And yet those are things that are primarily sins of the mind and of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, lust of the mind, lust of the flesh, pride of life. But right in the middle of that list, right smack in the middle of that list of the manifest works of the flesh is a reference to the demonic realm. Witchcraft is included in the list. Now, why would that be? Partly because the human brain in sin, the human person in sin, does not have the capacity to draw clear, bright blue lines and always know exactly what's the flesh and what's the devil. The truth is, the devil and the flesh, as historic scholars used to say, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're in an unholy alliance against your soul. Take a moment and turn in your Bible to 1 Peter 2, verse 19, and just look at an example of why that's true. Think about it in terms of this whole issue of bearing fruit for the glory of God. One of the great adventures of life is to realize that at every point of your life and mine, we can be sure, we can be absolutely sure that it is God's will for us to bear good fruit unto the Lord. And when you open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, I think I said chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 through 23, we see Peter referencing exactly the same principle that through Christ, we are believers in God 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, verse 22 applies this principle of learning to love more effectively to the new birth, being born again. Look at 22 and 23 of 1 Peter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because you've been born again. And how do we... How do we connect this born-again experience with this bearing of fruit? Well, Peter, again, uses the illustration of a seed that bears fruit. There is a potency in the seed of the gospel that you can cherish in your heart. And you can say, when I came to Christ, you could think with me for a moment right now of when you first gave your heart to Christ. And friend, whether it was five years ago or five months ago or 50 years ago, I can assure you that what 1 Peter 1.23 tells us and what Colossians 1.10 promises us is contained in that seed of the gospel. What does 1 Peter 1.23 say about being born again? It says you're born again not of a corruptible seed, not of a seed that loses its potency. No, you're born again of incorruptible seed by the living word of God which lives and abides forever. And if there was any question in anyone's mind about what Peter means by the seed, he even goes further in verse 25 after the Old Testament quote and specifies this word, the last half of verse 25, this word of God is this good news that was proclaimed to you. Now, toggle back to Colossians 1 before we finish. And I want to ask you to think about this because as we pray for and consider uh, the vitality of these two areas in every Christian's life, staying free from bondage, staying free from encumbrances and traps and snares of our souls, staying free from the devices of the devil. We're not ignorant of his devices, Paul said. And the other side of it is growing well. Growing well. Are you on a growth track today? Are you on a are you free in Christ and are you on a growth track? Well, I know you are because you're here and the word of God is working in you. I know that. But the beauty of Colossians 1 and these two prayers here that we see is is Paul praying over them is that it's activating this seed principle so that we can say that um, being born again is not just a one-time, it's not just the experience you have once you've come to that assurance, but it is the working of the grace of God to develop us and to, and to ground us. Now, that brings us back to conclusion here in Colossians chapter 1. I want to ask you to think, just before we close, that um, Colossians 1, 23, just go to that text, then gives us a way to kind of, uh, a, a little different uh, metaphor, but uh, complements this truth of this vitality that is needed, and that is that in verse 23, Paul kind of shows us the pastoral reason for his strong accent in verses 4 through 11 on praying for the believers. We can take this home, by the way, and just pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for our congregation. Pray for any congregation you're a part of. Pray for uh, your closest friends and pray for missionaries. Pray for leaders. 
anyone in your sphere of influence. But be, as we do, the goal that motivates all of this is in verse 23 of Colossians 1. And it is something that sounds simple but profound. Continuing in the faith. If you'd look at that in Colossians 1.23, I'd like you to think about it in this light that this is the superstructure of strength, the anchor, the foundation from which all development of a congregational life and our life in Christ comes, and that is there is a thing called the faith. I want to come back to that after we read the text. Read the text from the screen there, just that one excerpt. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now first it's obvious logically <laughs> that this wouldn't be said if it was impossible to be drawn away from the gospel. Would it? If it was if there was no danger that Christians would drift from the hope of the gospel, then Paul wouldn't have warned that, right? He wouldn't have equipped them. But obviously that's not the case. He's giving us a wonderful imagery the, the pillars of strength, the foundation of the gospel is in this thing called the faith. Now, a great way to understand how we can stay free and grow well is to realize a very important distinction between faith and the faith. And, and here's, it's very simple, and that is, faith, of course, is that wonderful response of the heart to the promise of God. In a secular sense, faith is just believing something you can't see. But in a more elevated and biblical sense, faith is responding to God, isn't it? Responding to the word of God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things we hope for. But it's because it's grounded in what God has revealed. Those who died in faith, in Hebrews 11.13, died in faith not having received the promise because they believed in the character of the one who had assured them. Again, the value of their faith was not in their ability to believe. I like to put it this way, that your heart and mine is not a faith factory. I don't manufacture faith very well. When I try to spin it out, it's like uh, it's, it, it comes out weird. <laughs> when I respond to the promise of God, my heart can say yes. It's why, it's why we can always know that, that we need the Word of God every day, even sections of the Bible that we don't understand well. How many of you know you need the parts of the Bible that you look at and you think, I don't understand this? <laughs> we need it, don't we? That's why it's not a bad idea. If you have an insomnia and can't get to sleep some night, just start reading Leviticus. You'll, you'll get to sleep pretty soon. But in the midst of it, you'll also be absorbing eternal, infinitely valuable, inerrant Word of God. Amen? And God will use that seed later, and it'll, something will spring to life. And you'll find yourself understanding something from Leviticus 19 that, that impacts your soul. But it's because God put it there. It's the working of the Word of God. So faith, without the definite article, faith is my response to God. It's the individual igniting of that trust that comes because of the character of the one who said it. Then there's the faith. Well, look at the text. Continue in, would you say it with me, the faith. Now, the distinction there is the faith is the objective 
solid, absolutely immovable facts upon which my faith and your faith are anchored. I like to think of it this way. Faith, as I was describing it, is the subjective side. It's what's internal to a human being. And when it's in response to God's word, it's alive and it's vibrant and it's effective. Now, sometimes we miss it in faith. We think we're believing something, and then we find it, oh, wait a minute, I wasn't believing that right. How many of you had that experience? But the, but the issue is not, uh, is not within you. It's what you're responding to. But when we come over here and talk about the faith, shout out the faith one more time, the faith, we're talking about something that's foundational and factual and eternally settled in heaven. It's God's word. And you can count on the fact Here's what I love about it. Even when you're having a day where you might feel like, man, my faith just feels so flimsy today. I just feel like my faith is just floundering around. Well, guess what? The faith never shakes. Your faith may be kind of weird and all over the map. The faith is always dependable. And when Paul prayed for these Colossian believers that their eyes would be open, that they would grow in hope and love, that their love would abound even more and more, that they would begin to perceive what it means to bear fruit for the glory of God, living a life that pleases Him. He said the reason he could pray that is because there's a solid, immovable, unshakable fact. It's Christ the King. It is in Christ alone. It is Christ conquest. It is Christ cosmic reign his eternal reign at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's why in chapter 3 he comes back to wrap up a call to wholeheartedly trust God by saying, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because you are dead. The old, the old sin nature has met its match in the cross and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So God's giving us a picture. The seed of the gospel, potent, alive, vibrant, available. And in prayer, we have prayer's not a duty, prayer's not some obligation, prayer's not something, well, I got to do my prayers now. No, prayer is pressing in to say, God, I thank you. I know how ignorant I am. I know how ignorant I am. I know that I need my eyes open. Lord, Open my eyes to the power that produces abundant fruit in a life that pleases you. Let's pray together and I want to ask that as we do so, maybe in your own individual way, you could think for a moment here of, of I hope, a new way to picture prayer in your life. And that could be, you may be at very pl various places about your prayer life. You may be reasonably... Um, settled in how you pray and that's good that's good but wherever you are in your prayer life I would urge you to take a fresh look at Colossians 1 verses 4 to 7 and then verse 9 to 11 and think about praying part of that prayer yourself and put it put it directly before the Lord and and let it be the springboard for you to say Lord I know this that in all the goodness that with which you've surrounded me goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life but I know that my heart, the vitality of my heart needs to have more awareness of this wonderful seed, this seed of the gospel and the power 
that you've invested in it for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that I'm under new ownership. Could you say that with me? Thank you, Lord, I'm under new ownership. Amen.